Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would come among us by your Spirit. Lead, guide, and direct. We ask that you would apply the truths of your eternal word to our hearts and lives in a way that makes us more and more like Jesus and that continues to be transformative in our lives. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here. We just keep bumping up bit by bit in Sunday attendance. And good morning to everyone watching via the live stream. So glad that you've joined us. And even though we are still physically apart, please know how much I and all of us love each of you who is not able to be here in person at this time. And we are here to support you in any way that we can. So a warm good morning. Looking this morning to our New Testament reading from Ephesians chapter 2. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles or devices there. This is a quite familiar passage. At least portions of this passage are quite familiar to many of us. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is a profound account of God's grace. An account of the truth that God can and is more than willing to essentially and dramatically transform us by Christ's power and his grace at work within us. When we talk about transformation, we're not talking simply somehow about outward change, change that is wrought by a human being. It's much more a sense of a metamorphosis. And in biblical imagery, so often what is used is the imagery of a caterpillar that goes into a cocoon and then comes out a butterfly. There's an article in National Geographic about two years ago talking about new research that scientists had done in this area because it used to be that to cut open the chrysalis or the cocoon um, or to find out what was going on in the chrysalis or cocoon required either cutting it open or using an x-ray, both of which destroyed the life in that cocoon. But now with newer technology and micro CT scans, believe it or not, they have micro CT scans that can scan a cocoon. <laughs> um, they can now see how metamorphosis takes place. And what they've discovered is that certain cells die, certain body parts atrophy and completely disappear. They're eradicated. Meanwhile, other cells that have been there in dormancy since birth rapidly expand and the adult emerges as a completely new creature, a new creation, remodeled, capable of flight, and, and listen to this, and possessing a completely rewired and reprogrammed brain. And that gives us a wonderful picture in many ways of what, excuse me, of what God's transforming grace does in our lives as we surrender to Christ. Ephesians chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, St. Paul draws a contrast between who we once were apart from Christ, who every person is apart from Christ, and who God has made us to be by faith through the power of the resurrected Jesus. After a lot of working on this sermon this week and wrestling with this text that I very much felt drawn to initially, um, looking at the lectionary a few weeks ago, I was thinking I was going to preach on the gospel reading. And the more and more I went along, I felt drawn to Ephesians chapter 2. But after working on this sermon this week, which was going to encompass verses 1 through 10, 
I concluded prayerfully that I really couldn't do these 10 verses justice in just one sermon. So I'm making this a two-part sermon. My main point this morning will focus on verses 1 through 3, who we once were. And next Sunday, part 2 will focus on verses 4 through 10, who God has now made us to be. And I will have subpoints, obviously, with both of those as well. But I want to ask you this morning to hang with me here because this Sunday and next Sunday, we're talking about some deep and profound truths, um, some, some pretty deep concepts in Scripture, things that cannot be fully grasped because of God's awesomeness and power simply from a human frame of reference. And especially today, as we look at part one, hang with me because these are some, some hard truths, some things that are not... Um, correct from the world's point of view and fly in the face of the worldly conceptions about people and human beings. But it's especially appropriate for us to dive into these verses during this season of Lent. So let's begin with who we once were. St. Paul reminds the Ephesians of who they and we once were. Look at verses 1 through 3 again with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There are three specific characteristics or traits of the person who does not know Christ who is outside of the transforming power of God's grace, which St. Paul identifies here. And what he identifies here, we have to remember, depicts the state of you and me apart from Christ's transforming power at work in us. So what is the first trait? You walked according to the values of this world. Verse 2a. St. Paul begins by highlighting this condition with saying this, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were dead. This is clearly describing a spiritual state, not a physical one. It's clear that the recipients of this letter in Ephesus were very much alive physically, biologically. And Paul begins with the older former condition in verses one through three, before, hear this, before he explains the power of God's grace in verses four through 10. So why does he bring so much emphasis to bear in verses one through three about this spiritual state of being dead in trespasses and sin? Why is it? Well, here's the reality. Until we come to grasp until we are fully confronted with our desperate need as human beings, that we are sinful, and this is hard stuff to hear, that we are sinful and spiritually broken beyond any efforts of human remedy, human remedy or repair, and that this state of being completely separates us from God. Until we come to grasp that reality, of our human depravity and brokenness, until we come to grasping that, we will never begin to comprehend or grasp our need for God's grace. Ouch. This is the really hard part today. 
that we are broken beyond repair, beyond human repair, and we desperately need a gracious God and Savior to intervene on our behalf. 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And here's the heart of God. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all, all should come to repentance. And it is not simply that, or it is not that we are simply spiritually dead. We are dead, as St. Paul says here, as God's word says, in our trespasses and sin. These terms trespasses and sin here are used synonymously grouped together. Two ways of saying the same thing here in Ephesians 2. And the picture here is not somehow of an occasion or an inadvertent misstep or mistake. Rather, the picture points to a continuing state of being, a conscious, willful, and deliberate state of action against God's holy and righteous character. Again, that is hard stuff to hear. And it's difficult to confront these realities in ourselves. And yet this is the consistent testimony of Scripture, of God's Word, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Isaiah 64 verse 6 reminds us, We all have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, or as it says in the King James, like filthy rags. Romans chapter 3, beginning verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no one does good, not even one. And Paul continues here by emphasizing, this is how, speaking to the Ephesians as believers now, this is how you once walked. To us, God's word says, this is how you and I once walked. But notice here, it's past tense. What God does here is give us a picture of the day-to-day lives of these Ephesian Christians before conversion, before They entered into a living relationship with Christ. They walked about spiritually dead, following the course of this world. And like so many others, without a doubt, they didn't grasp the gravity of the situation. There have been interviews with many of the people who were involved with performing rescues during Hurricane Katrina back in 2006 And one of the airborne helicopter crews that was assigned to extract people in flooded situations where they were inaccessible except by air or by boat said this. On our first three missions, we saved the lives of 89 people, three dogs and a cat. It's on the first three missions. On the fourth mission, to our great frustration, we saved no one. But it wasn't for a lack of trying. The dozens we attempted to rescue refused to pick up. Some people told us to simply bring them food and water. We said, you are trying to live in unhealthy conditions and the water will stay high for a long time. Still, they refused. And the pilot writes, I felt frustrated and angry since we had used up precious time and fuel and we had put ourselves at risk during each rescue attempt. 
I felt like they were ungrateful, but in truth, they did not know how desperate their situation was. So often people, because they're dead in their trespasses and sin, don't realize just how desperate their situation is. The second thing St. Paul says is that you walked around or you walked according to the ruler of the power of the air. The second portion of verse two. So not only do we walk according to the values of this world apart from Christ, we are also apart from Christ under the power of the prince, to me, under the control of the prince of the power of the air. I know this is unusual language for us. But it, it would have readily been understandable to the Ephesians what St. Paul's point was here because they had a Greek frame of reference. In Greek thought, the term air was the idea of that which filled the space between the earth and the moon, if you will. Lower air, that which was closer to the earth, was believed to be impure. Higher air was pure. So Paul specifying locality in this way is speaking or the, of this impure air, the sphere or realm of the, activity, of the activity of Satan, the realm of impurity. So in the plain language for our day, what he is saying here points to the fact that all of this is not just a matter of walking around according to the sons or our own way of disobedience. That what is going on here is that anyone who has not experienced redemption in Christ and his transformative power is under the power and the influence of Satan. It's one or it's the other. I think that raises an interesting point because sometimes, even though all the things that are going on in our culture, and I know I will hear people say at times, well, they should know better than that. They know that's not right. They shouldn't act like that. Well, when people who have not experienced the transforming, regenerating power of Jesus conduct their lives... They're simply acting according to their nature. They're simply acting according to the sinful flesh. And they're acting accordance to the control of the prince of the power of the air. Why should we expect people who don't know Jesus to live any differently than sinful broken people who need God's transforming power? They're simply living out who they are apart from Christ. John Wesley, in his sermon, The Righteousness of Faith, says it this way. It's a little bit older language, but, but follow along. What is more than to acknowledge with our heart as well as lips the true state wherein we are, talking about apart from Christ, to acknowledge that we bring with us into the world a corrupt, sinful nature more corrupt indeed than we can easily conceive. Did you hear that? More corrupt than we can easily conceive or find words to express that hereby we are prone to all that is evil and averse from all that is good, that we are full of pride, self-will, unruly passions, foolish desires, violent and inordinate affections, lovers of the world, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, that our lives have been no better than our hearts, but many ways ungodly and unholy, insomuch that our actual sins, both in word and deed, have been as the stars of heaven for multitude, that on all these accounts we are displeasing to him who is of, a, of purer eyes 
than to behold iniquity. This is not a matter of outward behavior, of changing patterns of behavior. This is about internal transformation. That's the only thing that can change this broken and dead state. It goes much deeper than externals and superficial. It's a matter of the heart. It's the very essence of our being. And then third, you lived according to carnal desires. The end of verse two. The unconverted, including the Ephesians, and each of us before encountering Christ's transforming power in our lives, live according to the passions of our flesh. Our bent is to seek that which satisfies our flesh. And we're not just talking about sexual things of that and things of that nature here. We're talking about greed and lust and gossip and, and anything that is contrary to God's character. That's our bent. That's our nature. We follow our human sinful impulses without godly restraint. The idea of the flesh here is that which opposes God, that which is contrary to God's character. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the flesh. Anything that is in opposition to God, anything that is contrary to the heart and character of our holy God. Back about 10 years ago, um, the Josephson Institute in Los Angeles did a survey of high school students. They're an ethics institute. Um, they randomly surveyed 30,000 students from 100 different high schools nationwide. And among these things were the findings. 64% of the students said they had cheated on a test in the past year. 30% had stolen from a store. 42% they would lied, said they would lie to save money. 83% they had lied to their parents about something significant in the past year. Despite their transgressions, 93% of the students surveyed said that they were satisfied with their personal ethics and character, with 77% adding, I am better than most people I know. This is a picture of the brokenness of the human heart, that we look at things not as who we are, but in comparison to other people with these temporal superficial judgments, or we we look and grab for, apart from Christ, some sort of temporal justification or satisfaction to deny our brokenness and our need for a savior. So what can we assess from all this difficult stuff that God's word reminds us of here? Well, first we can assess this. Apart from God's grace, this is the lost state of every human being. It's not popular to say that, but it's true. When I was doing my chaplain residency in chaplaincy, you encounter folks from all different faith groups, Christian and non-Christian, and even within, and I'll use the term Christian loosely here, there is quite a spectrum. And I remember one of my um, chaplain resident peers um, who was part of a mainline denomination and um, she said, well, I don't really believe in original sin. I like to think more in terms of original blessing. It's like, well, yeah, we were blessed before the fall, but as un ugly as it may be and unpleasant it may be to deal with, original sin is foundational to everything that scripture says. 
if there wasn't the truth of original sin and humanity's fallenness, why did Jesus have to die? Why do we commemorate and in a sense reenact his sacrifice in the words we pray during the Eucharist every Sunday? Why does St. John remind us that he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world? Apart from God's grace through Christ, this is the state of every person. And the second thing is there is nothing that we can do about it in and of ourselves and of our own efforts. A person who is dead cannot bring himself or herself back to life. That requires supernatural intervention. It requires a savior, the one and only savior, the eternal God, son of God himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is hard stuff. And I know that. I was, with fear and trembling, I approached how heavy I knew this sermon was going to be today. But I think it's especially appropriate during this season of Lent as we focus on exactly why Jesus had to come. As we focus on our need afresh for a Savior, our daily need for God's grace. Even as we pray in the proper preface for Lent, that portion, the communion liturgy that changes from season to season where we pray, you bid your faithful people cleanse their hearts and prepare with joy for the Paschal feast, meaning Easter that fervent in prayer and in works of mercy and renewed by your word and sacraments, they may come, that's us, brothers and sisters, may come to the fullness of grace, which you have prepared for those who love you. I don't simply want to leave us here because this today is an essential prelude, if you will, to next Sunday. It may seem hopeless, and from human, in human terms, it is hopeless. However, let's conclude today with two words. The first two words of verse 4 of chapter 2. But God. But God. Did you hear the conjunction? Yes, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Yes, we were under control of the prince of the power of the air. Yes, we acted according to the flesh and carnal desires, but God. And we will talk about that next Sunday because that is perhaps the biggest conjunction in all time and history and eternity, but God, because he loves us so much. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for these essential truths of your word that even after you have transformed us wonderfully are still really hard sometimes to face and confront. And they fly so much in the face of so much that the world around us would say and claim and assert. And yet, God, this is your truth. And Lord, as horrible as it is, it points us to even greater beauty in your truth because of who you are in your gracious, loving, merciful, 
covenant-keeping power. So, Lord, even this week, remind us afresh, even those who are fully and holy in Christ and in love with you, remind us afresh of our daily need of your grace, of our daily need of a Savior. And remind us, Lord, of how many around us walk about every day in darkness, spiritually dead, and they desperately need to hear the good news of a loving Savior who can transform them and bring them to life, not only for this moment, but all of eternity. Lord, fill our hearts with passion for your truth, for the whole counsel of your word. And Lord, fill our lives with a sober assessment of who we are apart from Christ, even as, so that as we interact with those who have not encountered your transforming power yet, we understand the power of your grace. And Lord, that was us before Christ. And it is even us now apart from Christ's continuing work in us. Lord, fill us with that heart. Fill us with your eyes of compassion and mercy. And fill us with the truth of your word anew. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.